Well, let's pray again. We've prayed a lot in this service. Uh, That's what Christians do. Let's pray for the preaching of God's Word to be clear and impact your heart and change your life. Um, I'll pause for just a few moments for you to pray for this time, and then I'll join in and lead us, if you would. So go ahead and, and bow before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that Your Word would give us life. We know that Your Word is powerful. It's unstoppable even. It always accomplishes what You intend for it. And we, we pray that You would intend Your Word to bless us this morning and change us and help us. Father, we pray that none in this place would, would be hardened by what You say today in Your Word. We pray that great understanding would be given We pray that Your Son would be exalted. We pray that our minds would be helped and our hearts warmed and encouraged. And we pray that this time of unfolding Your Word would give great light and move us beyond our natural simplicity, simple-mindedness into deeper communion with You, a more mature view of our life and our responsibilities that are in our lives right now. I pray for help in preaching and help for those listening. Uh, get great glory for yourself, Lord, we ask in this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Does this man sound blessed to you? I'm about to describe a man, okay? Does this man sound blessed to you? He's a young, aspiring art student. We'll call his name Ado. I know that's a really weird name. Ado, the young, aspiring art student. Consider. He's born into the world with both parents, both parents, that's a blessing. At the age of six, he's demonstrating high intelligence. Later, his deep passion is granted, and he gets to attend art school. He also, besides art, enjoys the opera, theater, reading, and drawing, and he even experiences diverse cultural influences. He moves to Vienna to seek entrance into the Vienna Academy of Art, but is rejected. But he recovers well from this rejection and shifts his passion into politics and even hones his incredible oratory skills. He's praised by others around him for his motivating speeches. He makes a name for himself. He gets wealth. He enjoys fine dining. He has a lot of wealth, actually. He has a private vacation home with breathtaking views. And when it time, comes time for him to die, he doesn't die all by himself with no one around. He dies arm in arm with his wife and dies right by her side. So let me ask you, is that a blessed man? Go ahead and answer that in your mind. Yes or no? Ado's full name is Adolf Hitler. His evil schemes are at the core of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. He experienced blessings, blessings, but he was not a blessed man. There's a difference. God makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust. 
How can you tell if someone is experiencing true blessedness? The blessedness of God's kingdom. What is the indicator? Or more personally, I'm asking you this morning, everyone that can hear me, I'm asking you, are you a blessed person? I'm not asking if you've experienced blessings. Because everyone does, the just and the unjust. I'm asking, are you a blessed person? Do you have the blessedness of God's kingdom? Well, how can you tell? It's a very useful thing to know. It's a very encouraging thing to know. It's a very motivating thing to know. It's something so important to grasp that in the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave, right at the very beginning of that sermon, he front loads the sermon talking about blessedness and describing how to know what blessedness in God's kingdom looks like, how it operates. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would adopt the way of thinking that Jesus has about blessing, what true kingdom blessedness is all about. So I would invite you to look at this with me. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first six verses. And just for context, again, the book of Matthew primarily is for a Jewish audience, but it's all about these themes of God's people being defined anew based on the work of Christ and the end of the ages culminating and dawning in Jesus. That's what the book of Matthew is about. And the Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at this morning spans a couple of chapters. And this Sermon on the Mount is a a kingdom manifesto. We heard that a few weeks ago in an overview sermon. This is a transformational message, a transformational manifesto that is meant to make wise God's people, help them flourish. And Jesus is speaking authoritatively here, talking about the kingdom of God. And one final note before we read this. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the kingdom. And we said God's kingdom is his redemptive reign and rule. His redemptive reign and rule. It's his dynamic authority. It's where holiness is operative. As Samuel said in his sermon last week, did you catch how he talked about God's reign being manifested? Direct quote from the sermon that was great. Last week, Samuel said this, God's reign is manifested through what we desire. The Jews who Jesus is speaking to in this passage today, they had some misconceptions about what they should be desiring and what blessedness is. They needed some correctives. They needed to know what a blessed person is like. Because like us today, And like them then, we think we're blessed if somebody pays for our lunch. If we get the house we want, if we get the family that we want, if we get the friends that we want or the grades that we want or the retirement that we seek after, that's what we as Americans so often say, I'm blessed if fill in the blank. But Jesus is telling us something a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot different. The things Jesus has to tell us this morning about what real blessedness is really has little and almost nothing to do with your present circumstances. 
And the challenge for us this morning is to really believe it. It'll work wonders on your apathy. It'll work wonders on the depression that you feel. It will totally re-script the way you feel burdened in life if you know you're a blessed person. So my hope and prayer in this sermon is very simple. I'm hoping that by the, by the end of this sermon, you'll know what blessedness is if you possess it and how to cultivate it and increase it in your life. That's good news. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about blessedness. Follow along with me the first six verses of Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And let's go ahead and finish out the list, 7 through 11. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning, we'll be looking at the first four of those nine blessed statements, those beatitudes. And by the way, beatitudes, that's just the Latin phraseology for blessing from beatus, beatitudes. So we're going to look at the first four today. And the first four beatitudes that we're going to look at are actually the four points of this sermon. So it's a very one-to-one correlation. Those blessed in the kingdom live their days on earth with these four realities, these four things at play, okay? Point number one, a specific kind of poverty. A specific kind of poverty. That's verse three. Point number two, a specific kind of pain. A specific kind of pain. That's verse 4. Point number 3, a specific kind of gentleness. A specific kind of gentleness. That's in verse 5. And then point number 4, a specific kind of desire. A specific kind of desire. This is verse 6. If we set the scene where Jesus is saying these blessed things. Picture, it's not like what we're doing right now. You're sitting in a relatively comfortable seat. That's subjective. You're sitting in a comfortable place. Air conditioning, lighting, somebody standing before you with microphone, praise God, projection. That's not the context Jesus spoke these words in. He's sitting on a place of elevation, a a sloping hillside or a mountain. We saw that in verse 1. There's crowds around him. There's no separation of adults and children and maybe even animals, so it's noisy. 
the wind is blowing around. We don't know how intense the wind is blowing, but there's always a little bit of wind. The sun is shining on these people. Birds are chirping. They're at a rural countryside setting. Common people are sitting before Jesus with no voice amplification, but because he's on a hillside, he can project his voice. They can hear it. And unlike in the Old Testament when Moses went up on a mountain to have a great time of teaching from the Lord and everyone was excluded, here Jesus goes up on a mountain and we don't know which mountain it was. But he goes up on a mountain and unlike that time with Moses, people are actually invited to draw near. His disciples come near and he opens his mouth and teaches them. And so we get these four Beatitudes that we'll look at. That's the context in which these are spoken. Before we get into point one, though, I have to define what blessed means. If we go ahead and define it now, it'll help as we start to walk through these. Uh, My intention is to define that word for you, give you the main argument of this sermon and this text, and then tell you some false, erroneous ways of looking at the Beatitudes. And my prayer is that you'll take these and it'll help you today And Lord willing, next Sunday when we look at the other half of these Beatitudes, because they're meant to be kept together. So first, a definition. Before we get into point one, just a definition. The word blessed, or blessed, however you want to pronounce it, is a very loaded term. It's pregnant with meaning. Here's what it means. It's a word that pushes beyond the warm, fuzzy feelings of just being happy on the surface. It's not surface-level happy. It's substantial and solid. It is a position of favor with the Lord that produces flourishing. You could say it this way. Blessedness is a state of flourishing or thriving, being truly happy, truly prosperous, having wholeness, all because it's anchored in the favor of God, knowing He's pleased with you, You're living in light in accordance with His will, and thus you flourish. That's what blessedness means. As Christians, we know that that blessedness comes in Christ. The mystery of who the Messiah is has been revealed. We know that all blessings terminate and culminate in Him. But even in the Old Testament, We're told things like Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then we get a biblical picture of what blessedness is. You remember verse 3 of Psalm 1? The tree planted by streams of water. The leaves of that tree are, are green. They don't wither away. That tree doesn't worry about drought. It's thriving. It's flourishing. That's what Jesus is saying here when he's using this word blessedness or blessed. So that's a definition. Here's the main argument this morning. If you're thinking, what's the point? Why am I sitting here this morning hearing hearing this sermon? Here's the point. You can know with certainty what makes for a blessed person. You can know with certainty. The main argument, the main idea of this passage, the main thing I'm trying to tell you is you can know with certainty what blessedness in God's kingdom is 
And if you know that, you can then cultivate it and pursue it. And you won't be distracted with what the world said, says blessedness is. I would like everyone in the room right now to, to smile. You don't have to look at me and smile, but just smile. Okay. You're smiling because when Jesus spoke these words, they were encouraging, and you're contemplating what I just told you. I just said the main point of this passage is you can know with certainty what blessedness is. Brothers and sisters, what more do you want out of life than to know for certain God has favor with you? You are blessed. And you're going to thrive in blessing. What more could you want? God gives us the answer here. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to speculate. And one other thing I should say before we hit point one. I want to tell you the way I thought about these Beatitudes when I was way back in high school, even in college, after college. Basically, here's the way I thought about the Beatitudes all the time, right up until this past week, studying this passage. And maybe this is what you think about. I used to read these and think, okay, let me pick and choose the one that I like best or my personality resonates with most, that's the one I'm going to cling to and claim for myself to comfort myself that I'm blessed of God. And the other ones that seem kind of hard or that they don't really fit with me, that's okay. I, I know I'm still blessed because I've got one. I don't know if that's how you read them. That's one erroneous way to see this. Another bad way to, to read the Beatitudes is to think that they're like spiritual gifts, that God gives everybody one of them but not all of them. Or, one other more subtle false way of seeing these is to think that this is just a, a stage, a gauntlet of spiritual maturity that you progress through. That you have one of these beatitudes at one point in your life, you mature enough to where you blossom into the next level, kind of like you're moving up levels of a video game. That's not how to look at the Beatitudes either. The right approach is to keep them tied together. One of the ways I know that, you can look with me at this. Look at the way verse 3 ends and verse 10 ends. They end the same way, don't they? Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't forget what he was saying and mess up there. Jesus is bookending these blessed statements. He's packaging them all together, folding them under the dynamic rule and reign of his authority in the kingdom. And then in verse 11, that's a transitional blessed statement that is still packaged together but transitions us to the next. They're, they're to be kept together and tied together organically. If you want a helpful analogy, think of it this way. You've got many systems in your body right now operating as you're listening to this sermon. You've got your circulatory system, keeping your blood going, your immune system, fighting off disease, your central nervous system, keeping you upright, keeping you breathing. We could go on and on. Your digestive system. You tell me which one of those systems you would love to have fail today. 
and no longer be healthy. Yeah, that would not be very fun. You need all the systems working for you to be healthy and thriving. And Jesus is giving us these beatitudes, these blessings, these blessedness, to tell you, Christian, hey, these are all the systems that must be going on in a Christian's life. In seed form, in small form, they're present if you're genuinely a Christian. But you can press into these and grow them and cultivate them if you set your mind on what blessedness is. So today, I have a tall task in front of me. I'm going to try to put forth four different blessedness proclamations that Jesus gave without trying to pick which one's most important and tell you, cultivate all of these. And yet, there is still a logical order Jesus gives them to because they do commend one another. So we'll start where Jesus starts, and that is in verse 3. He gives us this first beatitude. This is point number one, a specific kind of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I ask a 17-year-old Austin High School student in Schlotzky's Deli on Wednesday afternoon what that verse means. And I didn't intrude on his responsibilities at, at Schlotzky's. He asked me, what can I do for you? Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting there. I said, everything's great, man. And it was. But then he follows it up, and maybe the most genuine way I've ever seen a, a person who works in a restaurant looks me in the eye and says, well, if there is anything you need, I can do it. I'm not going to give you his name because I told him I wouldn't share his name if I tell you what happens next. So I said to him, hey, well, there is something you can do for me. I've got to speak on some words that are 2,000 years old. I would love to know what you think they mean. It's just one quote. It's really short. Can I, can I read it to you? Sure. I say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know what the gist of the conversation was? I'm not going to go into the seven-minute conversation we had. The gist of the conversation was this. This young man simply said, we can't know what that means. I mean, who am I to say what that means? I'm only 17. By the way, Brett Atkins, if you're here, he, he said he knows you at Austin High, and you are his administrator, was his word. I can tell you his name after the service. He also claimed he's a Christian, and he, he displayed many fruits of the Spirit. I think he's a believer, but, but it was disheartening when he said that. You know what? I don't think we can know what it means. So what I want to tell you this morning is what each one of these Beatitudes mean. I want to define it. I want to tell you what it means. I want to show you some biblical examples. I want to show you the opposite of it. And I want to tell you how to apply it to your life. Okay? Just a little bit of time on each of these. So this first one, a specific kind of poverty, let's define it. What does poor in spirit mean? Poor in spirit means this. It's an adjective. It means being dependent on someone else, lacking in spiritual entitlement, lacking in spiritual pride. It means spiritual bankruptcy, that you are nothing without God's gifts. It means being lowly, a beggar, needy, destitute of wealth spiritually. 
It's a position of only being able to get if others are giving to you. That's poor in spirit. What we read in the service today that Zach read for us is probably the clearest picture of it. The Pharisee and that tax collector. When we are poor in spirit, it's because we realize he is the creator, we are a creature. He can bring things into existence out of nothing, we can't. He can change our hearts, we can't. He can fulfill the debt that we have incurred because of our sin. We cannot. Poor in spirit is more than just a posture. It really becomes the core of your identity as a Christian. Again, all these Beatitudes are defining what a Christian is. And yet, even though a Christian in some measure possesses all of these beatitudes, there are varying degrees of measure based on how mature you are as a believer, how much you pursue and cultivate these things. And Jesus is telling us, you are blessed. You are blessed if you are poor in spirit. The opposite of this is being spiritually wealthy, spiritually entitled. You know this is true, don't you? The more wealth someone has, They can be tempted to rely on others even less, and they can be tempted to pursue their own agenda even more. Ask any of the wealthiest people on the planet. And spiritually speaking, poor in spirit puts us low, that we are in debt. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well. Of this beatitude, he said, If you prefer me to put this in a more theological and doctrinal form, because some of you love it that way, he said, I would say there is no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only than this beatitude. So the doctrine Jesus is tapping into here is justification by faith. That's what poor in spirit is. That means our hands are empty-handed before God when we come to him. That's poor in spirit. It's not, God, I'm coming to you. You know what? I've got some things I'll do for you, God. I'll obey if you do this for me and you try to make an exchange. You have no spiritual currency to bend God's arm and make him do what you want him to do. You are poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is what the church at Laodicea failed to see about themselves. In Revelation 3.17, they were indicted. Revelation 3.17, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. That's a picture of spiritual pride, spiritual riches. The good news, we can be poor in spirit because that puts us in the unique, perfect position to then be united to Christ. That's the good news. Jesus came to rid us of our spiritual debt, to have a great exchange where His righteousness is deposited into our account, and all of the debt we've ever had before God 
is then tossed into his account. He swallows it up. He takes care of it. What are you left with? The righteousness of Christ. It's profound to think. You can only think about this if you're poor in spirit. It's profound to think God would treat you as if you lived perfectly in thought, deed, motive, and action, and He would treat His Son as if He did all the things you know you've done. But that's just what God has done in the Gospel. Jesus Christ set His love on offering Himself up to die. He set His love on the Father, and the Father's plan for Him was to die in your place. And Jesus didn't bargain with God, okay, God, if I do this, uh, no, I'm, I, want, I want kind of my own way, Father. He didn't do that. Jesus came and lived, was stretched out on a Roman cross, and suffered the wrath of God beyond just the nails in his hands, the crown of thorn on his head, beyond the shame of being naked, beyond the pain of the bloody cross, beyond all of that in a physical sense, in a spiritual sense, in that moment, he endured the wrath of God. Why? Because God must must punish sin. Debts must be paid. And God poured out all his wrath on Jesus Christ. Killed his son. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave to prove to everyone, you know what? The check cleared. The transaction was good. The payment has been made. And then Jesus ascends to the Father. And before he goes, he turns around and he says, go make disciples. Go proclaim forgiveness and repentance of sins in my name. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them all I've commanded you. Being poor in spirit is a blessed state because it points us to the gospel. And as the second half of verse 3 says, it gives us a marker, an identifier that we have the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to fold this doctrine, this beatitude into your life, I would encourage you to stop feeling like you are bothering God with prayer requests that you seem to pray all the time. Never again think that you're bothering God because you're praying to Him about anything, even if you've prayed about it a hundred times. God knows that you're a beggar. He knows that you're needy. God actually thinks it's strange if you get into His presence and you're not begging for something. We are very needy people. Poverty is not a glamorous word, but neither is the next word, pain. That's the second point. Point number two, a specific kind of pain. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does this mean, verse four, those who mourn? That sounds pretty straightforward. 
Well, it's not simply anything that would make us mourn, like our favorite sports team loses a big game. We fail to test in school. Somebody dings our car in a parking lot. And we get a scratch on it. That's not the kind of sadness, mourning, grief that's talked about here, because remember, all of these beatitudes are a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a kingdom manifesto. So the mourning has to be connected to God's kingdom. So what kind of mourning can we have that fits in God's kingdom? It's the type of mourning where we mourn and grieve over sin and the effects of sin. That's the definition. Where we mourn sin and the effects of sin. Mourning, as you know, is a verb. It's to experience sadness at the result of some loss, some hurt, some pain, where we grieve. It's often accompanied with tears, but sorrow doesn't have to be. Paul actually spoke a strong word to the church in 1 Corinthians. He said to them in chapter 5, verse 2, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He was talking about a case of sin, church discipline. In 2 Corinthians 12, 21, the Apostle Paul also says, When I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and impurity that they have practiced. Implication, we can mourn over our own sins, we can mourn over the sins of others. And we can mourn the effects of sin, like death. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, the Apostle Paul also helps us understand the idea of mourning. He says, I I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Do we mourn like the world, or is there this godly mourning, this kingdom mourning, this godly grief? This question might hurt a little bit. It often hurts me. Is the time of our prayer of confession in our Sunday morning services, is the time of the prayer of confession the longest time in your week where you're laying your sins bare before the Lord? If we are those who mourn rightly, then the prayer of confession will not be strange, new, or the only time that we're doing that in the course of our lives, much less the course of our week or the course of our day. We often think, if I get to joke around, that's blessedness. If I get to watch funny videos on my phone, if I get to hear people tell jokes, if I get to be entertained, If I get to have a lot of leisure, that's the blessed life. Jesus is saying, no, blessedness is for those who mourn. They mourn their sin. Because, at the end of the verse, they shall be comforted. As 2 Corinthians tells us in the opening chapter, God is a God of all comfort. So if you don't come to Him with any mourning, there's this huge aspect of God you will never intimately know, the fact that He is a God of all comfort. Mourning before God actually sets you up to experientially have a deeper relationship with Him. You can know Him as your comforter. 
Now, in all of these Beatitudes, the second half of each verse, we get a taste of it now, kind of in an already sense. The not yet portion of it, the final consummation of it, is at the end. You know in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 4, we're told, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Blessed be our great physician, who didn't come to call the righteous, but those who know that they're sick. They know that they're mourning and grieving over sin. He has a way to heal you, if that's who you are. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, meditate on the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Be okay with showing up to church on a Sunday morning and actually being in a state of mourning. You don't have to act like everything went squeaky clean and perfect since the last time we saw you. Lord willing, we've seen you throughout the week as we've met together and we're in it with you. We mourn because until we are glorified and made new in a final sense, even though we have the Holy Spirit in us, there is still indwelling sin. And that's the doctrine that's on display here. The doctrine of indwelling sin. The doctrine of total depravity. There's an organic connection between being poor in spirit, mourning our sin, and also this next beatitude. Because if we're mourning rightly, it it starts to burn and sear away the pride and self-reliance even further, and it commends a meekness. A gentleness, that's the third point. Point number three, a specific kind of gentleness. Some translations would put the word humility here, and that's valid. I wish I could just combine all the words at one and say gentle, meek, mild, humble, and just have all those words in my Bible just with a little dash in between. That's what this word means. Blessed are the meek in verse five. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Now, if we were to define meekness, here's what it would be. Again, it's an adjective that deals with gentleness, humility, being humble, being considerate, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance or their own agenda, but a right and proper estimation of oneself that flows out into a holy way of not lifting up oneself high above someone else, or a a false meekness, a false humility that gets low and is cowardly and is afraid to have conviction. Meekness is firm, it has conviction, but it's truth not devoid of grace. It's truth and grace. That's meekness, mildness, meekness. You've heard the cliche, meekness is not weakness. That's true. If you're meek, you can still have great courage, Great conviction, great boldness, even great passion, yet it's all packaged in a meek and gentle way. Jot down Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Your eyes might fall out of their sockets if you've never read this verse. In Numbers 12, 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. What that verse tells us is it is possible to be very meek. It is possible to be the meekest person on earth 
And if we link that up with what Jesus just said here, what extreme blessedness comes for those who are meek? And the promise in verse 5, Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Do you remember the discipline upon Moses when he didn't act meek? Remember? He was told, speak to the rock and water's going to come out. You're in the wilderness, you need water. What does Moses do? He's angry, he's frustrated, he's tired, he's at the end of his wits. He strikes the rock. He doesn't act meekly. He acts harshly in front of them. He disobeys God. And you know what happens? Nothing. No water comes out. So he strikes it a second time. And in God's mercy, water flows. He strikes the rock twice. And do you remember the discipline God says to Moses? You will now not lead the people into the land. Does that ring true of what Jesus just said? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. God's making it clear that in His kingdom, His agenda, you don't advance forward by harsh brutality of your own agenda. Or even taking His agenda and harshly, in hatred, pressing forward upon others. His kingdom is for the meek. That's real blessedness. A doctrine that comes into play with this beatitude would be God's omnipotence omnipotence, almost I said omnipresence. God's omnipotence, His power, and His sovereignty. You can be a meek person when you know God's in control of all things, and He's most powerful. He changes hearts. His agenda will go forward, not mine. That allows you to be meek in your life amongst others here, in your family, at the workplace. Meekness. That's real blessedness, because you will inherit the earth. And then finally, point four, all those things we've just talked about are infused with humility. And that bubbles up to the surface and results in this fourth one. Point four, a specific kind of desire. This is found in verse six. So put your eyes on verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So if we define it, let's go ahead and define it. Hunger and thirst. These are verbs. They're present verbs. They're not some future verb. It's present. You currently hunger and thirst. And it means, you know this, to feel the pangs of lack of food or lack of drink. So you're hungry, you're thirsty, you strongly desire it. You have an ache and a craving that's not able to be just put away and set aside very easily. This is spiritual food. And it's not just a, a general hunger and thirst, it's for something, it's for righteousness. This comes from a heart that's been born again, and there's new desires for righteousness. You remember when Jesus said to his disciples in his ministry, nah, I don't need any food, I've got food that you don't know about, I've got food I've already eaten, I'm good. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what righteousness is. It's the will of God being accomplished. It's, it's literally God himself, the source of all righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for God? 
many of you would get very angry if we locked all these doors and said, hey, there's something happening outside. We've got to stay locked in this room for the next 24 hours. We cannot leave. Yes, it'd be uncomfortable. How would we figure out what to do about bathroom breaks? But you know what would be really uncomfortable? The fact that you couldn't have anything to eat or drink. But some of you, including myself, we can go more than 24 hours without being hungry for God. What does that say about us? That says that we think blessedness is when we get to feed on other things. But the good news this morning is Jesus is telling us, hey, here's what blessedness is. It's when you hunger and thirst for me, for righteousness, for getting to do works I've given you to do. I've got to be clear. What Jesus is saying is not meant to lay on us heavy and make us feel depressed. It's meant to awaken us. Wow, yes, this is what blessedness is. It clears away the fog. I grew up in the same world you did. It's called planet Earth. And no matter where you go on this globe, what blessedness is packaged for us to be, it deals with how many friends you've got, how many physical needs are provided for, how much fun you have, how much physical health you've got. We start to confuse all over again blessings with blessedness. We have to keep ridding ourselves, shedding off that false thinking, because if we don't, we're going to just think Adolf Hitler was blessed. The doctrine here on this point, thirsting, hungering for righteousness, the doctrine here is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. God is working in such a way that you will increasingly desire righteousness from now to your dying day as a healthy Christian. A healthy Christian increasingly desires these things. You know your hunger and thirst is not quenched for the rest of your life if you have a good meal today. You're going to be hungry a little bit later, no matter how good the meal was. That's how Christians are with righteousness. And we're told there, we're blessed if this is how we are because, look at the end of verse 6, for they shall be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you have a sweeter communion with Christ. He reveals himself to you. You have sweet experiences of doing the will of God. And in a most sweet way, you will experience true, ultimate satisfaction when you die and you're with the Lord. All those desires are, are brought up in the Lord. And as Psalm 16 tells us, there's blessings and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. So in closing today, let's, let's close this first half of the Beatitudes. We'll cover the rest, Lord willing, next Sunday. Ask yourself this question. Really, it's a series of questions. Do I take this mentality of the Beatitudes with me wherever I go? Have you folded into your marriage the Beatitudes? Have you folded it into your singleness? Have you folded it into your campus life? Have you folded it into your sickbed when you feel like you're about to die? Have you taken this with you when you go to work? Have you considered it even comes to play when you're driving your car in Austin? If you're in standstill traffic, 
That doesn't mean that you're not blessed today. That standstill traffic might give you a lot of time to meditate on these, and so you're actually even more blessed. Again, these Beatitudes provide us comfort. They are so sweet. I've been so thankful that this week the Lord has shattered my old, faulty, stale mentality, which is half Christian, half worldly, of what blessedness is. It's wonderful when you have the birth of a child and they're healthy. It's wonderful when you have a paycheck. It's wonderful when you have friends. But that is not blessedness. That's just a blessing that can come and go. I'm encouraging you, brothers and sisters, know what Jesus says blessedness is and cultivate it. I promise promise you, you'll be more joyful then than you are now. Jesus' words are true. They can't be proven untrue. These blessings cause us to actually look outside of ourselves. Even though they seem to point at us and cause self-introspection, am I this, do I have this? They actually cause us to look outward to God, what He says is true, what's coming in the future domination of His kingdom, ridding us of all of our enemies, giving us His full inheritance. That's why we're going to close our service singing a song called Not In Me. As you're singing this song, I want you to think about how all of these beatitudes are going to show up in the final words that we'll sing. It's beautiful. Blessedness is something that should happen in increasing measure in our life. So this morning, just consider, is Jesus calling your life blessed? Or are you substituting some other definition? Praise God, He tells us what to look for. He gives us things to cultivate by His Spirit. Jesus has been and still is blessing people every day. And he's also making people blessed every day. I pray that you'll understand the difference and you'll seek after both. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for instructing us. We thank you for helping us. Left to ourselves, we we would seek the wrong things. We would measure ourselves wrongly. Lord, we are so thankful that in the gospel you hold out all of these blessed realities to us. Lord, help us to change our hearts and see as you see. Help us to sing genuinely from our hearts now. We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.